Please, if you enjoy these ramblings, please do like and share and subscribe. I really would be so grateful. Meta. So do we actually live in an onion? Or is meta just something we should watch out for during squabbles? Gotta love it that kids are so fast these days. Yes, I know. We're supposed to grumble that they have the minds of goldfish, stir-fried in their Xboxes and microwaved by their smartphones. But let's face it, kids are programmed to be inquisitive and to learn and to be creative and to laugh. In a nutshell, that means they're naturally sharper and can be smarter than the rest of us. And on top of that, this is the age of the kid. For most of civilised history, the denizens of childhood have been suppressed as inconveniences without knowledge or experience. Childhood, then, was not much more than a waiting period for the respectability that was supposed to be delivered on the 21st birthday. Now we can choose to realise how lucky we are. We live in perhaps the first age where it, is, it isn't considered crazy fringe to respect what kids have to offer. I mean, really respect it, not just love it for its cuteness. And if youngsters do have shorter attention spans, then that means they might actually get wherever they're going a bit faster than the rest of us. Take the fourth wall, for instance. Ancient Greek theatre didn't trust either its writers or its audience to communicate between them, and so they typically engaged a chorus to explain the dramatic action to the audience. Shakespeare had advanced a bit after 2,000 years, so he often not only had a couple of storylines going at once, but also maybe a narrator hovering between the audience and the action on the stage. At the start of Henry V, for example, the introducing narrator named Chorus, a coincidence? I think not, refers to the theatre itself, both physically and functionally, and the play specifically. He asks the audience to suspend disbelief sufficiently to imagine battlefields and palaces within the tiny cockpit of a theatre. But having a guy on stage who mentioned that he's on a stage doesn't break the fourth wall. Like, say, for Bubelbrox, he's just this guy, you know? I'm going to skip over the 20th century now. Why? Because I wrote three paragraphs about it and they were turgid, off-topic and boring, so I erased them. Ah, if you want to know about the 20th century, then read John Higgs. That guy's brilliant. Now, where was I? Yes, the fourth wall. Now, because I'm a wise old man, and you may perhaps not be, I'm going to patronise you and assume that you need me to explain. The stage of an old-fashioned theatre has a back, a couple of sides and a front. These four sidey things all have theatre-ish names, but that's irrelevant. If we are looking at a play on that stage, then it is as if we are seeing the action through an invisible wall at the front of the stage into the scene within. Invisible to us, but apparently solid to the characters on the other side. If we are watching a sitcom on the TV, then the TV screen is the equivalent of that same thing. This is the non-existent fourth wall of the dramatic scene through which we are looking. It was specifically named, and attention was drawn to it, by the enlightened French philosopher Denis Diderot, who stated in 1758 that by ignoring the audience, performers could better imitate reality. And so it was that this convention was codified and made explicit. 
the convention that everyone until the latter 20th century seemed happy to work to live with, allowing the audience to observe the rather tame innuendos of Brian Ricks or the imagined battlefields of Shakespeare's vasty fields of France. So when Shakespeare's chorus turns up at the beginning of Henry V, he inhabits the universe of the audience and talks about the play as if conversing with them. During his speech, though, the fourth wall is sitting there in its perfect non-existence and its subtle one-way visibility is assumed, respected and unbroken. Young Prince Hal doesn't ask Chorus who he was talking to. So it took centuries and centuries before the self-aware, self-referential late 20th century thought it might be amusing to disrespect that fourth wall by having characters on stage or in a film acknowledging the existence of the audience. Now, as soon as they do that, they are opening up a can of worms of a completely different category from the convention of drama. Because the moment the actors, or rather their characters, acknowledge the audience, they are also acknowledging the fact that they are in a universe within a universe. The artificial universe of the drama exists within and as a subset of the real universe in which the theatre is located on a certain street. Yes, it took adults all the time from ancient Greece to the late 20th century to discover that this idea has creative potential. Skipping several golden ages of drama on the way. Even as late as 1990, I remember feeling almost uncomfortable as Francis Urquhart addressed me through the camera and TV screen in the House of Cards. But I'm an adult. Any kid who's been to pantomime or who has ever shouted, Behind you, Mr Punch! gets it. They get the weirdness of it. And when they read Captain Underpants, they understand exactly why it is that when Harold orders everyone to stop following orders, it's even more funny when George tops the gag with, we've already used that joke in this book. Yes, there is actually a fandom page that lists every time the fourth wall is broken in the Captain Underpants books. I know that I jumped from theatre to books there, but the implication is the same. When the fourth wall is broken, then characters in fiction acknowledge the existence of an enclosing real universe, which contains the fictional universe that they inhabit. Fictional for whom? Real for whom? So yes, eight-year-old kids get that stuff that it took adults two and a half thousand years to invent. I'm sorry, however much I tried through three complete redrafts and any number of edits, I couldn't compress that digression about childhood anymore, so it would just have to stay put. Now, at last, having got that out of the way, I can talk about meta. Before Mark Zuckerberg took all those millions off his share value by choosing it as the new brand name for Facebook, we already had words such as metadata, meta-language and meta-analysis. So meta, with its data describing data, its language classifying language, and its studies analysing studies, is a bit of a fourth wall thing. Break the fourth wall, and instantly you open up the possibility of one universe inside another. But of course it doesn't stop there. Meta-analysis, for example, as well as analysing lots of previously published tomes of field research, 
may also collect other meta-analyses. In fact, once you have two levels of looking at something, you always have the possibility of an infinite number of levels, as anyone who has played with two mirrors can tell you. The characters in a play seem to have their own self-awareness and lives and cares and history two minutes ago, but now they acknowledge the existence of me and my meta, to them, universe. Not only do I gasp or laugh, I am drawn to postulate about the existence of a meta-universe outside the one I know. And suddenly, zip, we have an infinite, onion-layered universe of universes all nested inside each other. The way that I hear this possibility most commonly discussed is when people suggest that perhaps we live in a digital simulation. And if so, then is that simulation inside another one? Etc. Neil deGrasse Tyson makes a convincing argument that if there are two layers, it is statistically almost certain that there are many more than two. So the word meta immediately con conjures infinite possibilities outside and bigger than our own awareness. But does it go the other way, downstream? No, not really, not yet. Captain Von Trapp's kids put on a musical puppet play within the movie Sound of Music. But that doesn't imply that the characters played by the puppets have lives of their own as soon as the show finished. After they are done singing The Lonely Goat Herd, no one believes that these bits of wood will wait in their hamper in the style of Buzz Lightyear and write puppet shows of their own. Even if they did, then it stops there. There's a set of automatic breaks on any infinite regress downstream because the characters in a drama don't have any initiative after the author's pen goes down on the desk. However, I did say not yet. What I meant by that is we haven't made computers who are bright enough to invent simulations within which the simulations can create simulations. Not yet. Interestingly, deGrasse Tyson considers this too and concludes that it probably means that we aren't in a simulation at all. There's a much more close-to-home thing about metaness that I've realised as I've been listening to more podcasts and radio. One of the reasons I enjoy other people's conversations so much is that the people who make them, the good ones anyway, are just so good at having discussions. Why is that? Now, we all know the standard rules about this. A good interviewer asks fresh questions, then shuts up while the guest is answering, then builds on what has been said, perhaps with a bit of nuance or humour, and may invite the guest to develop the theme too. But there's always something else going on in parallel, a bit of meta-stuff surrounding the subject of the discussion, and that is to do with personality. At the basic level, what interviewers and their guests are talking about is whatever they're talking about. That is notionally the focus of interest to the listeners or viewers, and upon which one or both of the conversants is probably an expert. But at the meta level, there is also the fascination that the audience has with the fact that it is Stephen Fry sitting on Graham Norton's couch. And although he may be talking about Harry Potter, we, the audience, are more interested in what he's saying because we love Stephen Fry and we love Graham Norton. The real skill of an excellent chat show host 
is just to keep that meta envelope hovering at the right orbit outside the subject of the basic discussion. The focus shifts subtly to and fro between the object of discourse and the personality of the guest. The atmosphere can collapse as the host is too sycophantic or it can explode if a personal nerve is touched. You can see examples of these on YouTube and they are either cringingly embarrassing or hilariously funny depending on whether you love or hate the characters involved. My own favourite remains the pre-YouTube Robin Day John Knott walkout of 1982. In fact, meta is always a danger zone in conversation. We all know from personal experience that when a private discussion turns from whatever it's about to why you just said that, then we are already on eggshells. But let's get off the subject of argument and onto cold logic. Any kind of meta-statement is a potential minefield. Now, there is nothing in my larynx or my brain or my vocabulary or my use of grammar that stops me from saying, this sentence is a lie. But it can still cause my head to explode if I try and make sense of it. Until, of course, I realise that it's a self-referential statement that confuses the meta-level with the base level, and so it's quintessentially buggered from the outset. Philosophers are rightly wary of the risks of what they call infinite regress in semantic structures, and meta-anything is just begging to be sucked into that vortex. But after all this, and before I disappear up my own backside in the puffle logic, I wondered why Zuckerberg had chosen the word meta to rename Facebook. Did he know something we don't about our existence in a simulation? Or has he invented the means to do onion layers downwards as well as up? Nothing so exciting it emerges. Meta is apparently named after the metaverse. And that doesn't mean a universe of nested universes, but was itself taken from an earlier, simpler branch of meta's etymology, meaning simply beyond, rather than the later meaning of self-referential. According to the magazine Wired, the metaverse is more or less the same as cyberspace, but leaning towards virtual and augmented realities. So Zuckerberg's meta is apparently more like a, a super or a, a hyper type of wow word than anything specific, and apparently limited to any electronic simulations that we can create downstream from us, rather than the possibility of upstream simulations containing us. Of course, our nascent AI may one day develop and use this technology to create a mega simulated metaverse, and then invite us, dear humans, to experience the infinite pleasure of uploading ourselves to it through our friendly Neuralinks. Enjoy your messy organic life while you have it, Earthlings. The future meta one will certainly be even messier.